Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are from around the world. And as this is a kind of Easter weekend, or you might be listening on the bank holiday or the days that immediately follow that, we're going to do something a little different this week. Normally, it's just us lot reflecting on all the political dramas, trying to make sense of them all, trying to contextualise some of the things that erupt on a daily basis as if from nowhere. Of course, in politics, nothing comes from nowhere. Start again. And this week, we're going to do something very different. I'm going to have a chat with Alistair Campbell, because I mentioned his diaries last week, if you wanted a bit of Easter reading. He's got volume eight out. And after an email exchange, I thought it'd be a good idea to have a chat for the podcast. So that's what we're going to do. And I I just thought I'd set it up by explaining why I think it's so interesting, because some of you might think, well, hold on a minute, Alistair Campbell, you know, he was in Blair's government, he left in 2004 or whenever it was, you know, ancient history period. Uh, But his current diaries cover what I think is a sort of under-analysed period, the leadership of Ed Miliband between 2010 and 2015, and of course the coalition. It's, it's interesting, leaders of the opposition who lose elections tend not to write about it and don't do memoirs. And we've heard very little from Ed Miliband about his leadership period. Uh, we're now hearing a lot about it, if you read those diaries from one perspective, Alistair Campbell's. And it's such an interesting one because he was close to some of those who were highly critical of Ed Miliband and his leadership. And indeed, in the diaries, Alistair Campbell is highly critical of Ed Miliband. For reasons, as I discuss with him, I think are not wholly fair. I'll come on to that in a second. But he, because of his loyalty and his, in a way, as he says during our conversation, a kind of semi-addiction to all to being at the centre of it all, he becomes increasingly involved in the campaign towards the 2015 election, advising and helping Ed Miliband, sometimes being very candid in his criticisms. So I find that all interesting. The reason they were obviously right, Miliband's critics, Ed Miliband's critics, uh, that he wasn't up to winning because he lost. Um, But where I think they were unfair to some extent is in, in all the conversations chronicled by Alistair in the diaries, The talk, certainly from those he's speaking to, is that as well as questions, valid ones, about his leadership qualities, uh, that he had moved too far 
to the left. Uh, now, from their perspective, so people like Tony Blair in conversations with Alistair Campbell broadly support George Osborne's economic policy, certainly in terms of spending. Now, Tony Blair says Ed Miliband's approach to, way to the left of that, or, well, not way, actually. Um, the Ed Balls, Ed Miliband strategy was not way to the left of that. But it kind of implied Miliband was sort of rooted to some old Labour position, a comfort zone for him within the Labour Party. And yet, quite a lot, as I discussed with Alistair, quite a lot of what Ed Miliband was saying at the time about the need for the state to intervene in markets, about inequalities and the need to, coin a phrase of the moment, level up, have been adopted, first of all, certainly in language terms by Theresa May and then Boris Johnson. So was he really returning to a comfort zone or was he onto something? In which case, why did he still lose? So we talk about that. Tony Blair recurs frequently in the diary and is in this odd position, that sort of Shakespearean arc I've spoken of before, where this prime minister, so popular he was almost walking on water, in this diary, uh, 2010 to 2015, can almost hardly bear being in the country because of the media hostility, the hostility of some voters, largely to do with Iraq, although Alistair suggests it's to do with other things as well. How did that happen? And has he recovered to some extent now he's found issues like COVID and Brexit? And still, of course, his preoccupation with his view of how the Labour Party should revive and how relevant is that. Anyway, diaries are so fascinating. You hear it from one perspective and as you're drawn in, you can sometimes forget there are other perspectives. The, the reason why it's so interesting is, well, I don't know about you, but I've always found the solo careers of the Beatles almost as interesting as the time the Beatles were together, especially the 70s when all four were still alive and busy and clearly acting separately but highly conscious of each other. And the post-power period of the new Labour group has a similar fascination they're all talking to each other still all the time, sometimes close to whoever is now leader, whether it's Ed Miliband or Gordon Brown immediately after Blair, sometimes very distant, but all still trying to find their place within the orbit of politics and power. Uh, that's interesting. There's also a running human drama, the sort of family dramas of uh, Alistair Campbell's children and so on, uh, chronicled with their permission as we discussed. So I just think it's interesting and I thought you might like to hear our conversation which began, oh by the way before we start at the end we've got some great questions uh, on other issues. Uh, Keir Starmer, uh, some more reflections on the Alex Salmond, Nicholas Sturgeon position that we discussed last week but there's some great questions on it. Uh, the impact of the Covid public inquiry all to come. But first of all here is a conversation with uh, Alistair Campbell on his compelling, fascinating, and I think historically significant 
diaries, although, as I say, I disagree with some elements of it, inevitably, we all will. He is the sole voice, by definition, the diarist. It's very interesting, but I think they are continue to be of great historical significance and absolutely gripping read. And I began by asking him what his reflections were on this period, 2010 to 2015, Labour out of power for the first time in 13 years, Ed Miliband, not David Miliband, elected leader. Uh, as he put this diary together, what his main thoughts were about this period. I guess the strongest reflection is the extent to which I was arguing with Ed Miliband and his team about the need to defend the new Labour record. Um, and I feel, I still feel today that that was a mistake because, and I understand it, I do understand it, not least because I heard it so many hundreds of times as to why the... They didn't think it was the right approach. On the one hand, they wanted to signal change. I get that. Um, but my problem with it, and I think they thought with me, this is just me sort of a, a bit of, you know, it's a bit of an ego thing. You know, we won three elections. We did loads of things and you lot never kind of recognise it. Um, but it wasn't that. I actually felt that I knew that the Tories would be building their strategy around the idea of Labour crash the economy, which was a nonsense, but they'd managed to do that successfully. I knew that the media would revert to type and really go for Labour. And part of going for Labour is saying, for God's sake, don't have a Labour government. Tory governments are better. So if you've got those two basically saying the new Labour record is not worth defending, and you've got the Labour Party not defending it, I just think that plays into the idea that the public then end up thinking, well, why would you want a Labour government? All yeah. we hear is they crash the, you know, don't give, what was their message? Don't give the keys back to the people who crashed the car. Well, if you've sort of accepted, yeah, 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 maybe we did crash the car. We didn't crash it entirely, but we certainly, you know, we let the tyres down and it went into a ditch. Then, you know, don't be surprised if the public think, well, why would we vote for you then? It's interesting, though, isn't that, that there is one area where I don't think you were necessarily in this position, but I think, Tony Blair was and some of the people in uh, around David Miliband were, which is they did want uh, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls to accept that the Labour government spent too much and they resisted that and you can sort of see your point of view about don't trash the record but there was quite a lot of tension about whether they should, even though they didn't believe it themselves, say, look, okay, we did spend too much. That was an issue. We won't do it again. And, and, and so there seemed to be a lot of kind of hunger to trash different bits of the record. Yeah, and I, I, and I, I think that was, that was, you see, I think from Tony's perspective, I think Tony's felt, always felt, and he's, look, he's got a point on this as well. He's always felt that, you know, he wins three elections. As I was saying, in the introduction, you know, the last 11 elections, loss, 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 Blair, 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 loss, 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 loss. You know, there is a message in there somewhere if people will, are willing to be open-minded enough to look for it. But I think because Tony found himself being trashed, largely, a lot of it by the media, but also people within the, the Labour Party as well. I think a part of him wanted to just say, look, the reason you keep losing after me is because you've never, you've never offered our sort of politics again. Mm. Um, and I think he'd say that started with Gordon, then it advanced under, Je under Ed, and then it got even worse under Jeremy. Now, I think that the, the point about, you know, I think you and I have spoken about this previously, about the, the importance of history. Of course, politics is always about the future. But the one thing the Tories 
have always been able to do. Look at the way they still get resonance out of Churchill. Yeah. Look at how Thatcher, Thatcher's record uh, is used just endlessly to sort of just restate and restate and restate that she was a great prime minister. Well, you can have an argument about that, but they don't have an argument about it. They just state it. And I think that what you found with, with Tony is that it was literally that he was being kind of rewritten out of the, of the history of winning. <laughs> it's like, well, we don't want, we, you know, we want to win this election, obviously, but the last thing we want to do is involve Tony Blair, because I mean, Christ, you know, and that's just madness. Yeah, I, I, and I, I want to discuss Tony Blair in this period, because it's so interesting. But before we get on uh, to him specifically, in terms of where he was placed during this period, Ahmed Miliband, uh, a lot of you in discussion uh, in this period say he's moved too far to the left, but do you accept subsequently that quite a lot of the stuff he was trying to say has in fact been vindicated? I mean, Theresa May was going on about intervening in markets, which caused him so much difficulty. Johnson yeah. spent more than Miliband was ever thinking of spending. And yeah. so, so was he wrong? Was his timing wrong? Is it that a Labour leader can't make these arguments, but a Tory leader can? What, what's your reflections on, on all of that now, kind of reading the yeah. dark? Well, I don't, think, I don't think Johnson would be doing this stuff in the same way unless it was for the kind of economic crash that COVID has caused. Um, yeah. That being said, Johnson will kind of do and say anything that sort of fits his needs at the moment. Um, but listen, I've, I felt obviously at the start of this volume, when it's, you know, Gordon goes, there's the leadership contest, most people think David's going to win, Ed wins. Um, I think from then on, Ed was facing an uphill battle on credibility. And it, it may be unfair, but this sometimes happens in politics. I don't think he ever fully recovered from that sense of surprise, not just that he'd won, but that in winning, he'd kind of turned on his brother. I think the public found that, particularly as we were just coming out of the whole TBGB drama. And I, I think that, and Ed, look, I say in the book, and I've said many times since, I think Ed has got a lot of strengths. I think actually he's, he's had a good post leadership, as it were, within the, within the Labour Party. And I do accept that his arguments, and I always said, I thought that the thing that Ed was onto was this thing which I've always believed, which is, is that inequality, there are, there are real inequalities that even though we made massive progress, we didn't make as much progress as we, as we could and should have done. I've always accepted that. But I feel that Ed was doing it. Yes, he believed what he was doing, but there was, for me, it felt like there was too much positioning going on vis-a-vis -vis Labour mm. of the past, as opposed to vis-a-vis -vis the Tories of the present. And the big argument, this goes back to what we were discussing a moment ago, the big argument for me that he was playing into their hands. And look, I, I, I literally was saying it till I was blue in the face. And I even said it on the, the day of the last debate and say, please, Ed, just understand. And he was like, look, you know, we've had this argument. We can't keep going over it. But I felt that we enabled the Tories in their attack about Labour caused the crash. Mm. Um, and so all of that, I think, did play. It wasn't a question of timing. It was a question that doing those things, which individually I didn't have a problem with, 
but I felt it allowed the Tories to characterise them in a certain way. And how did you sort of reconcile your kind of own, it's very, because you're the narrator by definition of, of, of the diaries, but it's sometimes quite hard to work out exactly where you stand. So at times when you read it, you think, oh, blind, I want out of this. I, I don't want to get involved yet again. You know, Gordon Brown brought me back in, Ed Miliband's bringing me back in. But you do get very, by the end, you're very drawn in. Um, was that sort of half because you can't let go, that, that this is so absorbing in the end, it beats everything else? Or, or what? Because at times in the diary, you clearly want out, really. <laughs> getting so involved with whoever happens to be Labour leader at any given moment. I know, and uh, I mean, I mean, the other, the, this, it's interesting going through the, the eight volume, volumes, seeing the changing, the changing names in the who's who at the start of the page. And one of the new additions to this one is my psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd say that a, a lot of the stuff we discuss about is actually that the conflict that is at the centre of your question. Mm. On the one hand, I feel I should, and on the other hand, I feel I don't want to. And depending on where I am and my life and what have you, and he would argue that I'm addicted, I can't give up. I have to be involved, I have to get at the centre of these campaigns. I would argue there may be a, a grain of truth in that, but actually I think what Ed found and what Gordon found is that I, I do resist, but eventually I, I, I feel I have to help if I can. Mm. Um, and then I, then I end up with the worst of all worlds because I feel that I didn't help enough and then I feel guilty about it. it, it do you think that he, Ed Miliband, who in some ways was too self-confident, I mean, in your diaries you make clear at times, he has a much greater sense that he's heading for victory than a lot of the people around him. But he's also, as you'll know better than me, has got an insecure streak. I mean, did he know quite how critical a lot of you were of him and how pessimistic you all were of his chances? I know you were very candid with him, but he sort of came back for more with you. He constantly needed you, even though you told him some very harsh things. I just wondered how you think he took it. I mean, you had conversation with Douglas Alexander, very critical wholly predictably with David Miliband, very critical. The degree to which that would have shaken him. Yeah, I think you've always got to be careful. I mean, I've had this with, I think with Tony, it was less of, a, of an issue, partly because we were so omnipresent in each other's company and, and, obvious, and, and, and so close. And also I think Tony did have a, you know, although he had his moments, he had a real a genuine confidence. I think that, both with Gordon and with Ed, you you know, part of me was always very, very careful. You didn't want to upset people's confidence because confidence is an incredibly important thing, particularly in a campaign. You've got to feel as you're out on the road and you're doing interviews and you're making speeches, you've got to feel that sense of energy and positivity and momentum. And I, so I didn't want, I, I did give, I did have some very harsh truth sessions with Ed but it was always in the hope, and the, and and to some to sometimes I think it was effective. It was it was really to try to get him to you know to get to the next level, to raise his game, to be better at what he was doing. And of course, you need you couldn't get to be leader of the Labour Party unless you have a bit of self confidence. But I think that Ed, the the team around him, um, at different stages, 
Uh, and I think we've seen this a little bit with Kia now. I don't, I don't know if there's the right balance between, uh, you know, really saying as it is, mm. but at the same time, saying it in a way that isn't going to shatter their confidence. But you're right about Ed. I mean, one of the things I like about Ed is you could literally, as I did sometimes, sort of say some really, really harsh things. And he wouldn't go away and sulk. He'd phone you up the next day and say, I've been thinking about what you were saying, and then we'd have a chat about it. One of the interesting things is, I mean, you formally resigned from Tony Blair being whatever it was, Director of Communications in number 10, when Tony Blair was still Prime Minister. But there are recurring themes, aren't there? And one of them, of course, is Tony Blair. I mean, he contacted you, I think, the day after you resigned in an earlier volume. He was on the phone to you for advice the next day. And here in this volume, it's so, I mean, it, it, there's a sort of Shakespearean arc. I mean, earlier volumes, there he was winning landslides with you beside him. And now at times he says, I can't really, I don't want to be in this country. I'm finding it so difficult. What, we won't go into the whole debate about Iran, but do you think it was inevitable that there was going to be this period in which he felt he couldn't really engage in the United Kingdom because of Iraq, then there was absolutely nothing he could do about that. Uh, or, or do you think he could have done more to address it earlier than he has? Yeah, I think, I think it goes back actually to, to something that he did when Gordon be, became Prime Minister, which was probably to Gordon's benefit, but not to Tony's. And that is that when Gordon became Prime Minister, I remember, I remember talking to Tony about this, he was absolutely determined not to be a backseat driver, not to do to Gordon what uh, Ted Heath, he was absolutely determined not to go the way that some of the Tory former prime ministers had gone and sort of sat around undermining their successors. Um, and I think what that meant was that you had a little bit of the, the new government under Gordon undermining Tony a bit. Uh, you know, he's this and Tony was that and he's, he's substance and Tony was style and all the stuff that we know got sort of briefed out uh, far too readily um, and then of course you had the media then became utterly fixated on this idea that Tony was just sort of traveling around the world making loads and loads of money and that's the only thing you ever heard no sense of the fact that he was actually you know making money to build a, an organization that is actually doing an awful lot of public good in different ways now um, and therefore and, and, and he just gave up he just sort of vacated the field so I don't actually think it was all just about Iraq either. I think it went deeper than that. And then play into that, the fact, as we've already discussed, that the Labour Party was, having seen him as a, the sort of great hero of the Labour Party, where now he was like the kind of, you know, the guy that you were slightly worried he was going to turn up and tell some old stories. You know, it was like that. And so, um, and I think now, I think, look, you've seen on COVID, you, I think we saw it during the Brexit debate at times, that... Tony still has incredible skills of analysis and communication and, and the development of an argument. Um, and he's a formidable politician. So, and this, vol but this volume, you're right, he's, he's sort of, I think he just feels the whole time that he's, that he's sort of, you know, he's fated wherever he goes in the world and he's sort of treated like, you know, he's been being asked and I, I got the backwash of this because I'm constantly being asked to sort of you know or was pre-COVID travel around the world and 
be the keynote speaker to so explain how we did it and you know always introduced as sort of you know part of one of the most impressive modern political projects etc 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 but in this country very very different and yeah i think tony found that hard there's no doubt about that did you get the impression that you say he's he, he's been very prominent in the covid debate in the uk and on brexit that he's more at ease with his post-prime ministerial life now than at any point since he left number 10? He's certainly more at ease now than he was during this period. Yeah. Um, I think he still, I think he still finds it very frustrating to reflect on how we've got to the politics that we now have, how Brexit happened, how uh, the Labour Party has got it itself into a position where we've now been out of power for 11 years, how a terrible Prime Minister like Boris Johnson could be head of Labour in the polls. I think he still reflects on that, and I think he finds it very, 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 very painful, as do I. I find it really painful, British politics at the moment. And um, But yeah, he, I, I think certainly in terms of his own ability to, to be involved, if you like, on his terms in a way that suits his character and his personality. I think he's in, in a lot better place than he was during the, um, the, the period of this volume, definitely. I mean, in this volume, you're, you speak to each other a lot about your analysis of politics, Ed Miliband, Cameron, the coalition, economics. Are, are you doing the same now? Do you, do you speak regularly about Keir Starmer and uh, John? Yeah, we speak regularly. I mean, I, I th I'd, I'd say of the last, you know, 80% of the last batch of conversations, I, I'd say he has, he's become pretty obsessed with the coronavirus yeah. pandemic. I mean, he really has, um, no, I mean, he, he just, he's just absolutely, I, I can remember, you know, various crises that we were involved in, I, and, and actually I suppose the one that's closest to this was the foot and mouth epidemic, when he became absolutely fixated on the data, on the detail, etc. And he's a bit like that with coronavirus now. I mean, you say anything and he'll sort of reel off, you know, what's happening in this country, who invented this or this vaccine, that. So, yeah, I'd say he's, um, was, yeah, we still talk, definitely. Uh, the diaries, you know, this volume, is, it has the arc of a novel in that it opens with David Miliband sort of saying, please come and help. Why aren't you more involved with my leadership campaign? And it ends literally with you having a chat with David after Ed has lost the 2015 election. Um, but you, I mean, forget about the psychodrama of the two brothers. It, it got quite tense in this period between you and David, didn't it? He kind of felt sort of you could have done more for him. And, Again, you yeah, were. It did, it did, and and I understand that. And in fact, there's a, there's a. I didn't show the book to David, but I did show it to Louise, his wife, because I think sometimes I think the politicians just have to accept that they're sort of you know, as it were, his part of history and and so forth. And uh, but but there's a conversation I had with Louise uh, where I, I I kind of wanted to explain to her why I had been like I had been in that first campaign. I mean, the first thing is a bit like the Brexit referendum where I didn't get involved uh, as much as I maybe feel I now, now feel I should have done. Um, I just thought David was gonna win. Um, but secondly, I just, I, I, I'd gone through that um, whole thing with Gordon and I was perfectly happy, to, well, I was reasonably happy to do it. I wasn't happy a lot of the time. Um, 
but I just needed to get out of it. I was, I felt like I was drowning again. And, um, and, and so, and I think David did feel that because, you know, David and uh, it's not just that we're colleagues and, and, and friends. I mean, you know, Fiona and I, we were the witnesses to his adoption papers when they first adopted a child and, um, you know, we've been on holidays together, all that stuff. It, it goes beyond the kind of yeah. just political acquaintanceship. And, and I think also David probably did know and that ultimately that, that sort of dilemma that you identified earlier that probably I would end up with uh, trying to help Ed. And, um, and it was sort of bizarre really that sometimes I would be telling Ed what David was doing and telling David what Ed was doing because I was, you know, speaking to them more than they were maybe speaking to each other at a certain point. And, Diaries, I don't know whether you can learn lessons from the immediate past, but I suspect you can. I mean, here was a Labour opposition against what I think now even some on the right recognise to have been a fairly shallow Prime Minister, David Cameron, and Labour lost. Labour are now facing Boris Johnson, which I bet even Tory historians in 100 years will not see the most weighty figure in British politics. How do you think Labour need to deal with him in the light of all your experience, you know, the victories and the more recent defeats with Miliband and so on? Well, you know, the fact that we have lost four elections in a row against, as you say, you know, we're not talking Churchill, let alone, you know, or a Thatcher in yeah. this scenario. We're talking Cameron, we're talking May, we're talking Johnson. And I think to lose four elections in a row uh, that suggests to me there's got to be yeah, a real rethink. And of course, politics doesn't happen in sort of sudden, sudden jerking change. It happens as a continuum. And I think that Keir now, as I think, does have the, the opportunity and the permission to, real, to, to be a, uh, an agent of real change. I don't think he does have to just worry about what the last manifesto was and um, you know, and all that sort of we won the argument nonsense. I think he can actually shape a, a new vision and a new approach, somebody quite like Johnson. That's hard to deal with. I, I, I think that, you know, I've, I've actually suggested to people in the Labour Party, I think actually, you know, there's a campaign to be built around the Nolan principles of public life. Mm. Honesty, openness, objectivity, selflessness, integrity, accountability, and leadership. I bet you I'm one of a very small number of people on the planet who can tell you what all seven are. Maybe he's turning to you like all the others, or most of the others. Um, in fact, is he, have, uh, uh, do you advise him? Uh, in, you know? Well, I, I, look, Keir is, Keir is somebody that he lives nearby. He's, he's our MP, so I speak to him. But not, you know, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't say that I'm, I, I offer what I think about things, that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But not in the way that, um, that I've done with previous leaders. So, so um, you would advise, because he hasn't done this, talk about Brexit in terms of the chaotic consequences. Talk well, well, listen, I, 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 did, I did write him quite a long note about the, before they voted for the Brexit deal, saying that I really think this would be a terrible mistake. And I do think that. Yeah. I think they've disabled themselves on Brexit. Yeah. But um, Voting for the deal. Yeah, because every time now that things go wrong, which I think they're going to do increasingly, one, that position makes them reluctant to want to talk about it because they think that sends the message to people who voted Brexit that they want to undo it. Um, secondly, 
it allows the Tories to say, um, I remember I, I said to Charlie Fortin, and Charlie Fortin was trying to persuade me that it was the right position. And I said to Charlie, listen, uh, I, I, you know, I will phone you up the first time I hear a Tory minister either at the front bench, at the dispatch box or on the radio or the television saying, what are you talking about? You voted for it. It happened, I, can't, I think it was Kwasi Kwarteng, happened two days after the vote. Um, so they've disabled themselves on that. And, I, and, you know, it's going to become the biggest elephant in the tiniest room. <laughs> and they're both dancing around it. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether he can find a way of transcending the decision to vote for the deal and, and highlighting some of the problems. There's absolutely no evidence of that yet. Um, in terms of the diaries, are you continuing to write them? I am, yeah. Yeah. They're not as, they're not as, they're not, I'm not as disciplined. Um, I now do them more on the screen on a laptop than I do handwritten. And I'm not sure that's great. Um, obviously, the last year, it's basically, you know, living in like everybody else, just sort of living at home. Um, I've not traveled. That, you, I think you lose a lot by not traveling. Um, I'm not nearly as disciplined as recording what else is happening in the world because I, I find I'm not following. I mean, I find it very difficult to watch the news at the moment. Yeah. Um, but you know, but I, th I think that you know, and you said, you know, after you read this one, you sent me a very, very nice message, and 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 it meant a lot to me because there are times when I keep going, when I think, oh God, isn't it time I just gave up? But then you people like you say, you know, they become they become more interesting because they're different. And actually, I, I do think, looking at the last one, that it's got a different tone and a different feel. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting. I, even I find it interesting to see these, these themes of the, you know, the people in, for example, the people in politics that you stay close to, yeah. that you didn't think you would, the people that you thought you'd stay close to that you don't, the friendships, the different sorts of friendships that develop. Um, you know, the other person who's whose death comes shortly after this one, of course. Well, the two, I mean, I dedicated it partly to Philip, but yeah, also Tessa yeah. Jowell and Charles Kennedy. And, you know, I, I had a much closer relationship with somebody like Charles Kennedy after we were both sort of out of the front line, as it were. Um, and, I, and, and I think that kind of thing is when you're talking about people that, you know, an average reader who's interested in politics would be very aware of, I think it just there's another there's an added element you can you can put out there. So there we go, Alistair Campbell reflecting on the period between 2010 to 2015, under-examined from the point of view of the coalition. Uh, not enough has been written about that coalition, in my view. A period of time where the consequences are continuing to be played out now and into the future. Uh, I'm very tempted to write at length about the coalition at some point. Uh, also talking about Ed Miliband, whose leadership has not really been talked about at all uh, in any detail since it finished with defeat. And that, as I said at the beginning, is often the case. I mean, Neil Kinnock never wrote his autobiography having lost two elections. They're, they're almost, for the people involved, too painful to write. But that does leave the space for others. Uh, so anyway, I, I strongly recommend the diaries. If you haven't read them yet, you're in for a treat. That's volume eight. And uh, thank you, Alistair. Sorry for the quality, certainly at my end. Uh, we recorded on Zoom, usually pretty 
good, I find, but not yet. But please don't send me technical advice. I, I think I know what I did wrong. But anyway, uh, Alistair was very clear. If I wasn't, I'm sorry about that. In terms of questions, one right away, which links to the discussion. Uh, from Cameron Mackay, uh, who himself is a brilliant podcast producer uh, based in, uh, well, his company is based in Glasgow. I don't know where Cameron's based. But um, uh, yeah, maybe I should have asked you, Cameron, about how you record on Zoom in quality. But anyway, he, um, he says in a question about Scotland as well, but he also says, on the issue of returning politicians... Uh, the second rise, their second coming in some cases. He wondered my thoughts on Ed Miliband's role in the Labour Party moving forward now that he's back on the front bench. Well, Cameron, there, and Cameron, by the way, didn't know we were going to be talking about Ed Miliband via uh, Alistair Campbell's diaries. It's, it's difficult. There are, of course, plenty of presidents uh, from the Tory period, William Hague, Andy and Duncan Smith, both coming back, Hague from a terrible election defeat in 97, and Ian Duncan Smith in a way a more humiliating experience of being uh, removed from power before you get near an election to be replaced by Michael Howard. Both served in uh, David Cameron's cabinet for as long as they wanted to. Both resigned early for different reasons, but they were both brought back. So there is absolutely a pattern to it. But I think former leaders find it difficult for different reasons. In William Hague's case, because all ambition had been spent. And so at times, I think he was quite a laid back foreign secretary. Part of the energy of politics derives from, I'm afraid, personal ambition. Why, why it shouldn't be a bad thing. Uh, but William Hague had none, which was comforting for David Cameron because he didn't want David Cameron's job. Uh, but at times, I think he found it difficult, Hague, and then kind of did leave and has shown no appetite to return to frontline politics. Ed Miliband found the last parliament awkward, or the last two from uh, when he lost up until December 2019, and then he came back with Keir Starmer. I mean, he was very interested in the Corbyn leadership, much more sympathetic to it on some levels uh, than uh, kind of the people who Alistair Campbell spent a lot of time talking to in the 2010 to 2015 diaries. But he's back now under Keir Starmer, who he knows well, who uh, was a kind of uh, friend of his before Keir Starmer got into Parliament. And is on the front bench, uh, and in interviews he shows great energy and conviction and passion and all these things. Uh, at times he seems and has seemed throughout his post-leadership period more relaxed. Um, but I don't think he has wholly found his place again in that political orbit, and I think it's very hard to do so. You've been the one in charge. You've won a leadership contest. You have thought for a time you might well be the next prime minister. And adapting to being rejected, which is deeply personal. And I've been wor worry worrying about him, actually, uh, whether he, if he reads Alistair Campbell's diaries, he will have confirmed for him the degree to which a lot of those around him basically thought he was a disaster as leader while they were working with him or for him. And so I think there's a lot going on there, uh, and it is very hard to come back. But given that president, and there's no more senior one really than to come back as foreign secretary, as William Hague did, 
uh, he's got every right to assume that if Labour wins, he should be a prominent cabinet minister, one of the few with a whole range of experiences. But it's difficult being a former leader, inevitably. Uh, Cameron also mentioned Scotland, so back to Scotland. And Andrew Anderson writes with an interesting reminiscence. Andrew remembers, this was the first time I did rock and roll politics live at the Edinburgh Festival. And it was in the summer, Andrew reminds me, it was the summer of 2014. And he says, I was one of the minority in your audience at the Edinburgh Festival in the summer of 2014, who answered your hypothetical question by saying Salmon would step down if the Yes campaign lost the Indy ref. You asked why, and I said it was because it was the smart strategic move and because he had done it once before. He had. He had already resigned and come back. I, I kind of remember that exchange, Andrew. And you were prophetic. Anyway, Andrew reminds us of this. We were doing unreliable predictions, even in 2014, as we do now. And I was asking them what, this was before the referendum, what Samuel would do if they lost. And he agrees, as I argued last week, that he is a very impressive player of the game of chess in politics you know the moves you have to make what you have to do to think ahead and so on um, but it's, he makes an interesting uh, point Andrew that it's important to note that Salmon has been the arch gradualist in his approach to politics he seriously contemplated a third option for 2014 uh, beyond independence versus the current status quo and he doesn't fit very comfortably with his new fundamentalist friends because I was arguing last week that the divide really is between Salmon's view of Sturgeon but beyond the personal fallout of epic proportions. Uh, Salmon's view that Sturgeon is too cautious and that the essence of his new party is to inject a degree of risk-taking urgency to getting the referendum and independence done. Uh, yeah, he, he has been much more of a uh, Harold Wilson-like incrementalist uh, Salmon in the past. Um, anyway, uh, so that's an interesting point. He, so he thinks, uh, Andrew Anderson, that there are going to be a lot of tensions within what is anyway uh, a relatively small party if the polls have anything to do with it. Slight difference of view from Tony Martin who says, I hold no brief for Alex Salmon, but I think his latest bid for Scottish independence is a masterstroke. The big difference from the SDP in the 1980s, that I was kind of making a comparison when, when there's a schism within a party, as there was with the SDP and Labour in the 1980s across the UK, uh, is the voting system. Yeah, no, you're right, Tony. There is a voting system. The, the list, um, he describes it for the new party as a no-brainer putting candidates on the list. We'll see. Opinion polls suggest they're not doing well at all, but who knows? Who knows uh, what will happen? Uh, so there's two slightly different views. Um, uh, Tony saying, oh, Tony interestingly says, I uh, endorse your recommendation of Campbell's Diaries. I've read the first seven books and found them riveting for their political insight interspersed with very honest personal reflections. So there we go. Um, isn't it funny how the emails issued before anyone knew I was in 
having that conversation with him uh, echo some of the themes of that conversation. Thank you all very much. Uh, another topic, Geraldine Henley says, there is a case for giving Keir Starmer more time, but time is running out. It, it's true, politics moves very, very quickly. She wonders about David Lammy, who's having a good time at the moment, an interview, uh, phone in he d does with LBC. It went viral when he dealt very sensitively with a, a caller sort of saying he wasn't English and so I don't know, or British. I don't know if you saw it. Anyway, she says Lammy is a barrister. He can do the forensic bit, but is also a Rottweiler. Uh, and do you think that Johnson will get the fixed-term Parliament Act ditched and have an early election. I don't know whether he'll have an early election. He's definitely going to get the Fixed Term Parliament Act ditched, Geraldine, which means there is a possibility he can call an election early. He'll call it when he thinks he's going to win. That's what prime ministers do, and that's why they, they've all been... Talk about, you know, the Cole Cameron era. Um, he introduced the Fixed Term Parliament Act as part of the coalition's early manic, speedy rush to legislation. Uh, Johnson will undo it, uh, and that will give him the space to call an election when he thinks he can win. Now, if he thinks he can win in 2023 rather than wait to 2024, he'll probably find an excuse to get there. So let's see, but definitely the fixed-term parliament going, like much of the early legislation from that coalition era. Now, some of you, do you remember, uh, you might have been around, I think it was the last podcast or the one before, where we had the uh, glorious evocation of um, James Buckley's life in Portugal. Anyway, he's written back. He said um, he's having such a good time in uh, Portugal. Uh, he says on Easter Day, they're having, uh, he said it won't interest me as a vegetarian, uh, slow, something slow cooked, what is it, a cabrito? I don't even know what it is some kind of meat or fish, slow-cooked and yoghurt, orange and port marinade. I bet they'll be drinking it outside with a glass. Well, he says we're going to drink that with a glass of red, no doubt overlooking the river and all the rest of it. And do you remember, I asked him, what's he doing out there? How's he getting a living in this idyll? Anyway, he said, in case any of you are interested, sorry about the political addicts who don't want any well-being in the podcast, but, you know, some of us like a bit of well-being. He said, um, there is work in North Portugal. Should your listeners want to join me in paradise? A considerable number of blonde, dreadlocked Germans have found employment by setting up surf schools, and I've been writing a book. Okay, good luck with that, and just have this fantastic time, uh, James. James was originally writing about Keir Starmer, um, and interestingly, he says... Now, here we go again, an echo with the conversation we've just had. Uh, personally, I think, think things might have been quite different had David Miliband become Labour leader in 2010. Why? Well, for me, he had cut through. He passed the ironing board test. If I were hurrying to iron a shirt in the morning, my son shouting and the Today programme in the background, I would stop and pay attention to David Miliband. It's, yeah, well, I've always had doubts about that. I suspect if David Miliband had won the Labour leadership contest in 2010, columnists would soon be writing knowingly that Labour had elected the wrong brother. And I think that's partly to do with uh, David's too great a willingness to accept the kind of Cameron, Osborne, 
to some extent, narrative on economic policy, the culpability of the Labour government in terms of spending, the need for austerity, albeit in a more modest form. And now even the FT, which backed Osborne and Cameron in 2010, have said we all got it wrong. Uh, and I'm not sure David was in the right place, but I get so many emails from people saying, God, I wish it was him. So maybe, maybe it would have been a transformative moment and Labour would then have won in 2015 and so on. I, I personally doubt it. And I suspect we'll never know because I don't think David will come back, although I think probably a part of him would still love to do just that. Anyway, the, the tensions between the two brothers are deep in the 2010 to 2015 Campbell diaries. And I mean, I knew it was bad, but it kind of comes over as even worse. Just a quick mention. You know, we're global now with listeners around the world. Do you remember... Simon Duffin, who used to work um, with the, the, the European Union, and I met him in Brussels when he was organising trips for us political journalists to come over to uh, Brussels. Well, he's now in Australia. He listens to the podcast, driving along. And I said, because he said, I'm just looking at kangaroos as I go, and I said, well, I hope one doesn't bump into you when you're so absorbed by the podcast. Anyway, guess what? He's written back this week saying, Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for reading out part of my email on Scottish independence. Uh, you said you hoped my listening to the Rock and Roll Politics podcast didn't coincide with my hitting a kangaroo anytime soon. Sadly, by the time I heard you last week, I'd already done just that while listening to another podcast. See, Simon, just stick to Rock and Roll Politics. It's safer. The kangaroo hopped off after a couple of minutes, not looking too well. But my car is off the road for an estimated six weeks. I mean, what a what a collision with a kangaroo! Such are the hazards of living in rural Australia. Uh, yeah, I think. What are you, Simon? An osteopath, a physio? Anyway, complete contrast from a life at Westminster and Brussels in rural Australia. The problem I now have is connecting my phone to the hire car I'm using so that I can listen to your podcast on my way to work. I might have to get the oars out otherwise and listen as I exercise. Well, suddenly, Simon, so many dilemmas. But do find a way, I hope, to carry on listening to the podcast while you're waiting for your six weeks before you get your car back. That must have been quite a collision. Anyway, really good luck and keep in touch with us all from rural Australia. Finally, from uh, Noah Keat. Now, this is back to a question which hovers over virtually every day at some point. I'm writing to ask about the forthcoming inquiry or inquiries into the government's handling of the COVID pandemic. How effective and accountable do you think they'll be? Could the results of an inquiry either blame individuals, meaning structural issues are unresolved, or blame government departments, meaning individual ministers escape blame? How effective have previous government inquiries been? It's really interesting that, you know, uh, here Starmer has started asking about it. You must start, let's have the inquiry begin now. And Johnson said, let's wait a minute, let's wait a minute. My sense is that when it is commissioned, the remit will be to learn the lessons in order to deal with future pandemics. The remit will try and focus on the future 
rather than giving too much space for apportioning blame. I also think that the government, before handing over, because once you've handed over to it, if it is an independent inquiry, it must be, um, certainly if it's a judge-led inquiry, the government then loses some control. But I think they will try and delay it for as long as possible and keep it going for as long as possible. Maybe the inquiry themselves will try and keep it going. Remember the Chilcot inquiry into Iraq? It kind of lasted years, and that had already followed four other inquiries. The Butler inquiry, Select Committee inquiries. There was, uh, what was it, the Hutton inquiry. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't move for inquiries. So I suspect that when we finally get it, Noah, uh, that the politics of the current period will have passed. Whether Johnson would still be in power, we do not know. Depends on all kinds of things. Um, and so I suspect its political impact will be limited. But let's see. It, these things are unpredictable. Uh, you know, for example, the Falklands inquiry uh, into the Falklands war was very critical of the Thatcher government for giving signals that they were giving up on the Falklands in terms of defence. But because Thatcher won the war and there was enough in the report for her to cling onto when she made her statement in response to the report, it had no political impact whatsoever in terms of its criticisms. And I think there will be enough in the inquiry, if it's, if it's relatively soon, for Johnson to cling onto praise about the vaccines, the fact that the NHS wasn't overrun. I can hear his statement now saying, obviously lessons learned, but on the whole, you know, we, we, we did this, we did that, we did that. And Starmer will do a, one of his better speeches because he, he will love having that report and framing an argument around it. It will be so much like his time as a lawyer. And he'll do a brilliant forensic assault and it won't get anywhere. That is my guess, but, you know, it is a guess. Politics is so unpredictable. Anyway, well, look, what a long uh, kind of post-Easter podcast. Uh, thank you very much for the question. Sorry I didn't get round to that many, but it's a kind of Easter special, you know, with the Alistair chat. Sorry on Zoom about the technical quality. I say, don't email me. I know what I did wrong on, at my end. I think Alistair sounded fine. And... Thank you all for listening. Keep the questions coming. Oh, yeah, better quickly give you the address if you want to make any points or uh, questions. It's stevrick1414 at icloud.com. And let's all get together next week uh, where we're back to normal, just trying to make sense of everything. Um, and see you then. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the week. Bye. Bye.